the gospel, getting it right and getting it out. That's a phrase I first heard from the White Horse Inn, the ministry of Dr. Michael Horton. I love that phrase when I first heard it and I love it still today. Let me say it again, the gospel, getting it right and getting it out. And we should have a passion for both of those things. A lot of people want to get their message out, but we first need to ask, is the message the right one? Is it the true gospel? And there are many pretenders. Galatians chapter 1 is a chapter that invokes the anger of God, the wrath of God, the anathema of God on anyone who brings a false gospel, a different gospel, even if they be an angel from heaven or, as in poor words, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, let him be anathema, anathema in Greek under the curse of God eternally. These are big, big issues and there are big issues to talk about and the stakes are very, very high. We must get the gospel right as well as get it out. And I want to talk about getting the gospel right. What is the gospel? And to start, I'd like to quote from a book I highly recommend by Dr. R.C. Sproul called Save From What? It's a fairly small book, but has a lot of power to it. And uh, we need to hear its message. Save from what? At the beginning of the book, Dr. Sproul relates an experience of his back in 1969. Way back there, he was already a professor of theology at the Conwell School of Theology and was on the campus of Temple University in Philadelphia. And he relates a short walk he had. And let me just uh, relate his words from page four. As the noon hour ended, I deposited my lunch tray in the bin and began my trek across the plaza to my classroom. I was walking briskly to avoid being late. I was alone, minding my own business. Suddenly, apparently out of nowhere, a gentleman appeared in front of me, blocking my forward progress. He looked me in the eye and asked directly, Are you saved? I wasn't quite sure how to respond to this intrusion. I uttered in response the first words that came into my mind. Saved from what? What I was thinking, um, but had the grace not to say, was I'm certainly not saved from strangers buttonholing me and asking me questions like yours. But when I said saved from what? I think the man who stopped me that day was as surprised by my question as I had been by his. He began to stammer and stutter. Obviously, he wasn't quite sure how to respond. Saved from what? Well, you know what I mean. You know, do you know Jesus? Then he tried to give me a brief summary of the gospel. This serendipitous encounter left an impression on me. I experienced real ambivalence. On the one hand, I was delighted in my soul that someone cared enough about me, even though I was a stranger, to stop me and ask about my salvation. But it was clear that though this man had a zeal for salvation, he had little understanding of what salvation is. He was using Christian jargon. 
The words fell from his lips without being processed by his mind. As a result, his words were empty of content. Clearly, the man had a love for Christ and a concern for people. Few Christians have the courage to engage perfect strangers in evangelistic discussion. But sadly, he had little understanding of what he was so zealously trying to communicate. That's the end of the quote, but uh, it has far-reaching consequences when we consider what we just heard. Again, we must get the gospel right as well as get it out. And to ask the question about salvation is to ask, what are we saved from? Salvation, of course, is a biblical word. Uh, We find it in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and we see it scattered throughout many, many, many times. And to talk about salvation means to talk about rescue, to talk about a rescue from a calamity. Even in the realm of sports, uh, we talk about salvation. In boxing, a boxer can be saved by the bell. You ever heard that expression? And not in view is the idea of eternal salvation in the sense of being right with God and spending eternity with God in heaven, that has nothing to do with how that phrase is being used there. But it does mean being saved from a calamity. That particular calamity is losing the fight. Uh, The boxer perhaps is on the ground having been felled by the opponent. Uh, The referee is in due process of counting to 10 and counting him out, and then therefore it would be a knockout but he only reaches perhaps number five, number six, as he's counting all the way to 10, and the bell rings and saves the boxer from the calamity of losing the fight. And that's uh, giving rise to the idea of being saved by the bell. A goalkeeper in the realm of sports, soccer or hockey, um, is given the task of making a save, and many saves. Again, on an eternal level, nothing's in view here. It's talking about being rescued from a calamity, of conceding a goal. When a goalkeeper stops a shot, doesn't go into his goal, he makes a save. And again, the idea is being saved from a calamity. Well, when we talk about salvation, biblically speaking, we are being saved from the ultimate calamity. And that is to, after death, encounter God and not be right with him and be banished from his presence to a place called hell where there is eternal conscious torment. And so to be saved is to be saved from that. And what is the that? That is the wrath of God in hell. To be saved is not to be saved from a poor self-image or from a lack of purpose or a feeling of emptiness. How many times have we heard, perhaps even a preacher on television or a street preacher or someone attempting to share the gospel and their message is, Christ will fill up that which is lacking in your life. 
They might give a testimony. I, I was into this, I was into drugs, I was into sex, I was into these kind of religions, and I never had the high that I had when I came to Christ. Christ is the ultimate high. There's no high like the most high. You ever heard that? That, ladies and gentlemen, is not the gospel. The gospel is not being saved from a feeling of emptiness. The gospel is to be saved from the wrath of God. And I want to prove that biblically. See, the problem is, if you don't understand the problem, you're fixing an illegitimate problem. And the problem is our estrangement from a holy God. And sin is the ultimate issue because we have a holy God who will not tolerate sin in his presence. I remember hearing an illustration that uh, I adapted from a movie documentary called American Gospel, Christ Crucified, and here's the illustration. If I take a key out of my pocket and use it to scratch a rock found by the roadside, I've broken no law and I'll face no consequences. If I go to an abandoned car dump site and take my key and scratched uh, a trashed car there, people might say, hey, what are you doing? That's about it. But if I go to a used car lot and use the key to scratch a used car, now I'm guilty of a criminal offense. But if I go to a Ferrari car lot and take the same key and scratch a brand new Ferrari, my punishment will now be way bigger, my guilt is intensified, and so is the punishment I will face. Why? Because of the value of the thing I sinned against, the value of the thing I scratched. God is infinitely holy, infinitely valuable, and there's no way to convey in human language the worth and the value of this infinite God. Therefore, any sin against an infinite God carries with it infinite punishment. And that is why the value of Christ's atonement on the cross for sinners is infinite. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a message that needs to be heard. Every preacher should ask himself, seeing that Paul wrote, we preach Christ crucified, is the cross in our message? Could the sermon be heard by anyone in any realm, whether it is in the religious realm? Could a Muslim hear it? Could a Buddhist hear it? Could a New Ager hear it? Could someone who embraces a false gospel hear it and not be challenged by the message of the cross? Is the cross in the message? Does it take the cross of Christ for this sermon to be preached? That's a great question to ask. And one we should ask ourselves, even as we share the gospel with uh, friends and family and even strangers, we must get the gospel right. So the message is not Christ will save you from a poor self-image or a lack of purpose or th this feeling of emptiness. You've got a cross-shaped void or a God-shaped void in your heart. Do you feel it? Christ can fill it. That's, that's not the gospel. Sin is the issue. The holiness of God is the issue. 
His judgment is the issue. And God is a God of love who's provided the remedy for encountering him. And the ultimate calamity, the thing we need to be saved from, get this, is God. To be saved is to be saved from God, from God in judgment. It's been well said, we are saved from God, by God, for God. Saved from God. And it's God who has given us the message, you can be saved from his wrath, not the devil's wrath, not some angel's wrath, God's wrath. Now, this all starts off as bad news, doesn't it? And some preachers even say, I don't want you to feel bad. Well, I'd like to just shout out, actually, uh, the sinner needs to feel bad before he'll feel good, (laughs) before he sees the good of the gospel. Steve Lawson relates a story of seeking to find a wonderful engagement ring for his future bride. And he went into a jeweler's and he saw a particular diamond uh, ring that the jeweler thought was just wonderful. And um, the jeweler brought it out, put it on the glass case. And um, Steve Lawson looked at it and thought, well, it's nice, but it's not, it's not uh, thrilling to me. I, I, it's expensive, and, um, but I, I don't think it's, it's worth it. It's, it's not that dazzling. And he said that. I'm not that impressed with it, to be honest. Well, the jeweler, um, having already got his white gloves on, now brought out a black velvet backdrop and put it on the glass case and then brought the diamond ring to the black velvet backdrop. And Steve Lawson was stunned by the dazzling display as he looked at this diamond ring. What was just okay, above average perhaps, was now dazzling. Wow, he could now see the full beauty of the diamond ring because the black velvet backdrop showed him the worth and the immense crazy beauty of the diamond. It shone. It shone throughout the, the room. It was amazing. And he went ahead and, and bought the diamond ring, and the rest is history. He, he married the lady. <laughs> but there's a message to that. To really fully grasp the dazzling beauty of Christ and the gospel, we must put the backdrop of the bad news in front of us. And that's what Paul does in Romans. And that's what we see throughout the scripture. Before he ever gets to the good news of salvation through grace alone in Christ alone, through faith alone, he outlines the black backdrop of sin. We're all under sin and deserve God's judgment. All of us have come short of the glory of God. And there's redemption, but you must understand what you need to be redeemed from, what you need to be saved from. And the biblical message is that we must be saved from the wrath of God. 
Let's go to the book of Romans, chapter 5, where we see these exact words. It does not speak of uh, poor self-image, as I've outlined, or uh, lack of purpose, emptiness, that kind of thing. Now, what do we say from? Look at this, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The therefore relates to the fact that on the basis of what has already been shared, I can now make this statement, therefore. And the message is we're justified by faith, apart from works, as Romans 3.28 has already outlined. Look at verse 6. For while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's wonderful good news. Praise the Lord. Verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, that's the message of the cross, isn't it? Verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, Speaking of Christ's blood, it speaks of his death on the cross once again. Much more shall we be saved by him, him being Christ, from what? See it in your Bibles. The wrath of God. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What are we saved from? Clearly, the wrath of God. We'll come back to that. It's a powerful statement. Um, First Thessalonians also speaks of being saved. Let me find it. First Thessalonians. Actually, let's, let's wait a while. I want to build up to that. You'll enjoy First Thessalonians if you've, if you've found it. Let's just hone in on what the wrath of God is before we go there. When we talk about the wrath of God, again, people don't want to go there, but the Bible's full of it. Have you ever read the Bible and seen the references to the wrath of God? It's not an isolated concept. It's not something made up by some out-of-sorts grumpy prophet one time, three times, eight times. Do you know there's over 600 references to God's wrath in the Old Testament alone? Two incidents in Exodus can help us understand this. In Exodus 22, 22 through 24, God says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Then later on, when the children of Israel make for themselves a golden calf to worship, the scripture records God as saying, 
Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I make, uh, may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, Yahweh, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. That's Exodus 32, 10 through 12. Now regarding this, Dr. Martin, uh, actually no, it's Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Let me give her a quote from him. It is evident in this passage that Moses' appeal to God is not based either on imagined innocence of the people. They were innocent. No, they were not. They were not innocent and Moses knew it. Nor on the thought that wrath was unworthy of God. Moses appeals only on the basis of God's name and how his acts would be misconstrued by the heathen. No doubt is expressed that wrath is a proper reaction of God's holy character against sin. Dr. Boyce goes on to say, quote, God's wrath is not arbitrary, as if God, for some minor matter or according to his own caprice, simply turns against those whom he formerly loved and favored. On the contrary, wrath is God's consistent and unyielding resistance to sin and evil. In the first passage, it is wrath brought on by sin against others, widows and orphans. In the second passage, it is wrath brought on by sins against God. Those are his words from Foundations of the Christian Faith. Let me relate to you now from the book of Nahum, chapter 1, uh, verses 2 and 3 and 6 through 8. Here's what we read. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He makes those who take refuge. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. End of quote. Do you notice that? The wrath of God is in view, but also the goodness of God is in, in view. And the problem we have is God is good. God is good in his love, for sure, but he's good in his justice. And in his love, he's provided a way of escape from his justice. Grasp that and you get a central theme of the gospel. Many more scriptures could Verify the reality and the nature of the wrath of Almighty God. Psalm 2, verse 5 through 9 says this, Then he will speak to them in his wrath 
and terrified them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Them being the nations. In the New Testament, the wrath of God is also clearly seen. It's not as if the Old Testament portrays the wrath of God and the New Testament portrays the idea that God has evolved in some way and he's better now. He's learned from his mistakes of being overreactive. Perish the thought. Now, two main words for wrath are used. The first, thymos in Greek, means to rush along fiercely, to be in the heat of violence or to breathe violently. It refers to a panting rage. The second Greek word, orge, means to grow ripe for something with the noun form revealing that this wrath has been slowly building over a long space of time. It's a gradually building anger that rises in intensity and therefore is not so much a sudden flare-up of hostility, which is soon over, but instead, as Leon Morris defines it, quote, a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's very nature. End of quote. Romans chapter 1, 18 through 20, reveals the present day reality of this wrath. For the wrath of God is, not the wrath of God was. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Romans 2 verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, are we getting this? Are we feeling the weight of this bad news yet? You see, I don't believe we'll appreciate the dazzling beauty, the amazing good news of the gospel until we do. Jesus is actually coming back to rule and reign. And when he does, it's not going to be like his first coming. He came First time as a humble baby, born in a manger. But he's coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords to enforce his rule in our world. Revelation 19:15 says this, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. I think that's a reference to Psalm 2, as we've already read. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron. Again, a reference to Psalm 2. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. That's pretty relevant when we realize this is yet to come. What will he do? 
He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Although this is referring to, I believe, a future event, the scripture reveals that the wrath of God is a present day reality. We've already seen that in Romans 1.18. Scripture also says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. That's John chapter 3, verse 36, the same chapter that gives us John 3, 16. We are not to have a preferred verse theology. I prefer verse 16 to verse 36. No, we should have a theology, a way of thinking about God. Theology simply means the study of God. We should have the right view of God from all that God reveals in his word. You see, I can't think of a worse calamity than this one, facing the full fury of the wrath of God against our sin. So let's ask ourselves, is, is it right, is it just for God to punish sinners for eternity? Well, we've already spoken to this somewhat. When we talk about the scratching of the Ferrari, but let me respond further with a quote from Jonathan Edwards, quote, our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in proportion to his loveliness, honorableness, and authority, for that is the very meaning of the words. When we say anyone is very lovely, it is the same as to say that he is one very much to be loved. Or if we say such a one is more honorable than another, the meaning of the words is that he is one that we are more obliged to honor. If we say anyone has great authority over us, it is the same as to say that he has great right to our subjection and obedience. But God is a being infinitely lovely because he has infinite excellency and beauty. To have infinite excellency and beauty is the same thing as to have infinite loveliness. He is a being of infinite greatness, majesty, and glory, and therefore he is infinitely honorable. He is infinitely exalted above the great potentates of the earth and highest angels in heaven and therefore he is infinitely more honorable than they. His authority over us is infinite and the ground of his right to our obedience is infinitely strong for he is infinitely worthy to be obeyed himself and we have an absolute universal and infinite dependence upon him so that sin against God being a violation of infinite obligations must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving of infinite punishment. The eternity of the punishment of ungodly men renders it infinite. End of quote. That's Jonathan Edwards from the justice of God in the damnation of sinners. <laughs> what a title that is. In light of all this, 
it's merely the pleasure of God himself that his wrath did not fall on us last night, last week, last year. In fact, it's very evident that God has been remarkably patient with us all. So if facing the full brunt of the wrath of God for all eternity is the worst possible calamity, and it is, then the greatest deliverance becomes immediately clear. To be saved is to be rescued from the wrath of Almighty God. God in his love sent his son to deliver us or rescue us from his eternally fierce wrath against our sin. Now we can understand John 3:16. For God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. Why? For this purpose, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, now we're ready for 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 and 10. Here we go. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It was God's idea to save all who believe in Christ from the ultimate calamity, the fierceness of his wrath. What a deliverance. What a rescue. God sent his son to save us from his wrath. We're saved by God, from God, for God. On the cross, Jesus bore our sin. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. God poured out his wrath on him, Christ, in our place. He took the punishment we deserved. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, bore the wrath of God on behalf of his people. All who believe in him as Savior and Lord are forever rescued from this wrath. But for those who do not receive the Son of God, God's wrath is being revealed. You see, for, for, for many who hear a false message, they're hearing a false Christ. Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. Well, if that's all they hear, they say, well, that's great. I love me too. Wow, what great news. Jesus loves me, I love me. I'm, wow, I'm on my way happily. That's not the gospel, folks, because we haven't talked about this real Jesus who, if we don't come under his shelter, the shelter of Christ, we are going to be exposed to his wrath. That's the Jesus of the Bible. We must preach the right God, the right Christ, and the right gospel. There's a day coming when God's wrath will be meted out in judgment. Revelation 22, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Hebrews 2, 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
The answer to that rhetorical question is clear. If we neglect this grace of salvation, there is no escape. There will be no escape. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So again, here's good news. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's verses 9 through 13. When we look at the preaching of the apostles, there's a technical name for that, the kerygma. Walk through uh, the, the book of Acts and look at the preaching. There's a lot of preaching in the book of Acts. The message wasn't, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. It was, there's a God, you've offended him. And God has sent Christ to be the judge of all. Call upon him. Call upon him. There's an urgency. There's much we can say, and I've said a lot already, but the wrath of God is coming. It's not just something that God got over in the Old Testament. You know, he did this flood thing and thought more about it. Well, I shouldn't do that again. No, he's promised never to flood the earth, but his judgment is coming and there's a fire coming. He will judge the world with fire. You see, the Jesus some preach would never cast someone into hell. Think about that. He just loves you. No. Um, God's love is displayed in the giving of his son. That's how we know he loves us. He's provided a way of escape. And the message is good news that there is a way of escape. Here's why. Are you ready? God is worth knowing. The triune God. There's one God. Three persons. He's one in essence. Three in persons. And he's been so from eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And creation was the overflow of that love relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And the gospel, my point is this, brings us to God. It's not just about having a certificate on the wall that says we're justified on face no wrath. The gospel is not merely the wonders of being spared from judgment, but that we get to know God for eternity and spend eternity with him. 1 Peter 3, 18, For Christ suffered once for sins. See, that's the message. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I remember hearing a wonderful illustration from Ray Comfort about the true gospel and whether we are preaching it, whether we're sharing it, whether we are getting it right and getting it out, we need to hear this illustration. 
He says, you're given an assignment. It's the day before 9-11, 2001. You're in New York. And you're given the assignment of preaching the gospel to people in one of those two towers, one of the rooms. It's 9-10. It's September 10th. And you know, but they don't. You are told by God somehow, perhaps an angel comes and tells you, this is your assignment. You're preaching to these people in this room the day before the towers come down. And you know it, they don't. And you're not allowed to mention the fact that you know it. That everyone is going to come back and work the next day and every one of the people you talk to will be dead 24 hours from now. That's your assignment. You know it. And you can't mention the fact that you know the towers are coming down. You can't mention that. But here's your assignment. Preach. Understanding that, would it change what you proclaim? Tell you what, it will certainly not be the case. You'd say, Jesus loves you and I tried this and that and whatever and Jesus fills my needs and he can fill your needs. No, no that goes out the window, doesn't it? You'll talk about eternal realities. You'll talk about the fact that one day each of us could even be today, could be sometime very, very soon. We are going to stand before a holy God. Will you be right with him? Will, will you know the saving grace of God? Call upon him. You'll look people in the eye and you'll say, come to Christ, run to, to Christ, run for your life to him. Flee from the wrath to come. And people might react, that's bad news. It is. The wrath of God is bad news and the good news is God has sent his son so you don't have to endure the wrath of God for eternity. Call upon him. There will be an urgency in your heart. When I preach, when I share the gospel with anyone, whether it's one-to-one -one or on the street or in the pulpit in a church, there's an urgency because I have no guarantee that the person I'm talking to will be alive even 30 minutes from now. There's no guarantee. And the Bible says, death is coming to all. It's appointed for men to die once and after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. The gospel relates the fact that Christ died in our place. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of the gospel that we are to proclaim. And it speaks of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. We don't serve a dead savior, he's alive, but he accomplished something powerful for us on the cross. He died for sinners, for our sin. First Corinthians 15, for I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then it goes on. The Gospel is about Christ, who he is and what he's done, the person and the work of Christ, and what he's done for guilty sinners. And the Gospel is how what he did is received, is appropriated by the sinner. And the message from both the Old and the New Testament is this. We're justified by faith alone. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Romans 3, 4 and 5. Read those chapters. You'll have a grasp on the gospel. And we can say this. Based on the sure foundation of Scripture alone, justification, which is God declaring us right in His sight, based on the sure foundation of Scripture alone, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Grasp all this, and we've grasped the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. For I'm not ashamed, Paul wrote, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Salvation, rescue. Father, we thank you for it. Help us to get this gospel right, and then to get it out. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.